Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. I'm here to remind you to take the Slate survey. It will be open through April 1st, and your answers help us make a better Slate. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. Everything that we're talking about up here as leaders is because of one central tenet, that human life is precious, precious to each one of us. And every decision we are making is with that in mind. How do we protect each other and how do we save lives? The purpose of this is to provide immediate relief to folks who are facing cash flow problems in their families. Where I'm focused is on the next package because this is the one that needs to make sure we've covered ourselves entirely on the healthcare front and that we're starting to make the right kind of response on the economic front. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So there was broadcasting, then podcasting, and now something even smaller and more padded cell-like than a pod. Padcasting? Anyway, I'm in my bedroom, sitting on my bed like a teenager, my hands scrubbed raw, alternately scared and disoriented and just blank. I don't have any words of wisdom today, except I found it instructive to read plague literature lately and remind myself that humans have done this many, many times before. Camus' The Plague, but also the Decameron by Boccaccio, Poe's Mask of the Red Death, and even some weird stuff from the early plagues. I mean, for really up-to-the-minute news on the coronavirus, you can't beat Procopius of Caesarea's unforgettable account of the plague of Justinian, that pandemic that afflicted the Byzantine Empire, especially Constantinople, written in the year 0550. The plague of Justinian was, it seemed, caused by the same flea-borne Yersinia pestis, the same bacteria later responsible for the Black Death, that bubonic plague. One of its hallmarks was necrosis of the fingers. Your fingers just turned black and died and fell off. Procopius said that 10,000 people died a day, and he recorded bodies being piled up on the streets. He also complained about the anti-vaxxers, the people who were being superstitious about it and hoping spells and witchcraft would protect them instead of good old Byzantine social distancing. At the same time, Procopius thought he knew the real source of the disease, and it wasn't magic. It was, of course, the evil emperor, Justinian, who was to blame. Procopius believed Trumpian, I mean Justinian, was cruel, venal, prodigal, and incompetent. He even believed Justinian was possessed by demonic spirits or was himself a demon, and that he had brought down the plague upon Constantinople, or at least exacerbated it, or minimized its significance on Fox News, or maybe blamed CNN. Oh, guess what? Just last year, in 2019, a group of scholars declared the plague of Justinian something just shy of a hoax and said Procopius, he was exaggerating its devastation just to stick it to Justinian and make sure the emperor got beaten by Joe Biden in the 555 election. Anyway, it was something like that. And you can see, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You guys get it. Oh, and I should say, if you don't want to read grim accounts of weird plagues like I do, there's always this good show, Flack, on Hulu, about a weird, cool, self-destructive PR woman who doesn't have necrotic fingers at all. 
My guest today is Sarah Ellison. She's a reporter covering media at its intersection with politics and technology for the Washington Post. She was earlier at the Wall Street Journal and wrote a great book about Rupert Murdoch's takeover of the journal called War at the Wall Street Journal, well worth reading. And she's going to talk to me today about media coverage of the virus in the age of Trump, particularly right-wing media coverage of the virus. Hey, welcome back to Trumpcast, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Last time you were here, you talked about Don Jr. being cut off like a starfish arm. And I still wish that had come true. (laughs) I'm sorry that I don't have better powers of foresight. It just, I still get to picture it every time. He still looks like a starfish arm to me in some ways, like infinitely dispensable. Anyway, we may have to wait for that because... Nervous breakdowns will be had in the order in which they were received. And today, like everyone else, we're talking about the virus. You have two terrific pieces of media criticism, essentially, in the Washington Post recently. And the first one is the one I want to start with. Fox News's evolution in its thinking about coronavirus. Tell me about this piece. So we set out to look at how Fox News was covering this crisis. And early on, some of its most high-profile pundits like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram were very much downplaying the severity of what was going on, talking about that it was not nearly as serious as the flu, that there was another famous moment where Trish Regan, who was a Fox Business host, had talked about how this was something that was really being overplayed by Democrats as yet another way to attack President Trump. There was a lot of usage of the word that this was a hoax. It was another, you know, first there was the impeachment hoax. Now there was the coronavirus hoax. And over time, I mean, all of us, in fairness, started being more concerned about the coronavirus over time. So I'll just say that as a matter of um, reality and, and just to be a fair journalist. But one of the things that we saw that was quite interesting was that these pundits, even though they had downplayed the severity of this at first, then pivoted to say that not only was this a problem, but that Donald Trump was dealing with this incredibly effectively. Sean Hannity, who is one of the president's closest sort of cable news advisors, was really outspoken about this. So he said, tonight we are witnessing what will be a massive paradigm shift in the future of disease control and prevention. So this is like a bold new precedent is being set. And he sort of, once he cottoned on to the fact that the coronavirus situation was actually really serious, he pivoted to talk about how well the president was dealing with it. I was reading the New York Times' backstory on the kind of thrashing within the Trump administration about how to how to handle the virus, the, the backing and forth thing with Jared Kushner and Mike Pence. And it does seem that out of the gate, Trump, his family, his henchmen and valets, and also, of course, his news agency, Fox, decided that to greet the news that there was a virulent infectious disease in China by sorting out an alibi for Donald Trump. It just the the weirdest thought pattern. They just skip over every single detail about should we be washing our hands more and go straight to how can we handle the comms? How can we handle a potential PR crisis? How can we make sure that Sean Hannity is on the same page as Jared Kushner? It just defies reason that that would be your first set of thoughts around a crisis being endured by all humanity. Well, it's interesting. One of the things that 
we uncovered in our reporting was that the way that the president responded to this at the outset was sort of guided very much by this thought process that you just laid out and the sense that the coronavirus was being used by the media to attack him and that you know there were two main concerns one was the stock market and the other was the way that media was handling it both of those are very much tied to his support um poll numbers re-election prospects and the overall sense of sort of winning um and that you know i i, I don't know exactly how you phrased it but that, that 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 it's sort of unthinkable that that would be the way that someone would approach a public health crisis like this the sense of the trump presidency overall has always been one of optics and always been one of how is this going to appear for the president now of course every president has always had a kind of communications shop um but this is a president as we know who's inordinately consumed with how he is covered how he's covered on cable news he's obsessed with fox he watches fox a lot more than you know we now all understand that he watches it a lot but certainly he consumes cable news more than any other sitting president and it's absolutely driven by the appearance of how he's handling it and so there's a there is a kind of dear leader quality to some of the coverage and you can definitely see that in the coronavirus you know it's been interesting how there's a certain politics to the calibration of how afraid you are so out of the gate, I heard lots of middle-aged and younger Americans talking about how because of their exposure to their children or their students or because they were excellent runners, that they probably had immunity and probably had, quote, already had it, you know. But to be blasé about it, then started to have a politics associated with Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity. And so then it was worth being somewhat afraid of it. But it's never good panics and hysterias, whatever the state of the market and the state of our collective health, are never useful. And so cautioning against panic on a certain level is a good idea. I mean, even uh, you know, Goldman Sachs and various banks have, of course, released things that sound quite convincing, saying, you know, don't pull out of the market, don't crash the market now, take advantage of these low rates, get new mortgages. You know, everyone has a stake in making there not be a run on ventilators and a run on rubbing alcohol and wipes. So part of the soothing of panic, and I'm not talking about the blaming the Democrats, but that some of these figures did in the beginning seems not entirely ill-intentioned. Right. I think that that's, uh, there's no question. I mean, having the sense that you don't want to stoke a panic in the middle of what is going to legitimately be a really serious public health moment. And at the same time, the credibility of the people who are communicating, I mean, this is a moment where that whether you want to call it Trump's war on the media or the war between the White House and the, the political press corps, all of a sudden these things have, not that they didn't have stakes before, but it's very rare that you have something that is essentially, in my job, a media story that can have real life or death consequences. And that's what sort of came up in this reporting is that if you have people believing, you know, you don't want to stoke a panic, but you don't want to mislead people about the severity of what this could be. And you also want to sort of have the credibility to say, this is going to be very serious. And we have 
the right experts on this and we are going to do all the right things to solve it, that's a different thing than saying the people who are saying this is serious are doing this to attack my reputation. And as we've seen, this now goes a little bit beyond where we left our piece, but you know, the president has given a lot of press conferences since we wrote this, just that sound much more sober and aren't scaremongering, but that are really, you know, he's now positioning himself as a wartime president who is really tackling this and is very somber um, and has a tone that is is very different from what what he started out as. And I think that that it's interesting to see if you watch Fox and some of the pundits, um, you know, how they've uh, how they've adjusted to that. We haven't talked at all about Tucker Carlson, who was sort of the outlier of um, his other Fox News sort of primetime hosts. And Tucker was was serious about this from the beginning and saying that it was a, a serious situation. And it's worth noting that, and as has been reported and as was first reported in the New York Times, that he drove to Mar-a-Lago and spoke to the president about how seriously he should take it. And that seems to have had a real impact on the president in terms of the way that he shifted his thinking. Not to say that that was the only thing, but that was certainly a real consideration. In the account of Kushner's influence on Trump, it seems as though part of Kushner's plea to him that we now know Trump has, or reportedly Trump has rejected the Kushner approach, was to see this as a, to see the, the whole virus as a PR crisis for Trump to be managed like a PR crisis. It reminds me of how Kushner advised Mohammed bin Salman after he ordered the butchery of, of Jamal Khashoggi, just saying, you can weather the storm. You can ride this out. It's, it's a PR, it's a personal crisis in perception of you and nothing else. Now, do you think that Tucker Carlson, that, that, Trump was sort of acting on those fumes. He wasn't and trying to kind of counterpunch or reposition himself as doing a good job or knowing a lot about the subject because he had an uncle at MIT or whatever. And and then suddenly to this other pose that I have to say is isn't to me no more convincing than any other Trump pose. It doesn't suggest that he gets it, but that somehow Tucker Carlson dislodged the Kushner thinking and made him see that there might be an advantage to seeming more like, you know, a field general than a tantruming child. I don't have the reporting to back up that Tucker Carlson's conversation with Trump was the thing that dislodged that Kushner approach. Okay. What seems clear is that the market's response to Trump's continued, uh, you know, every time he would go and have a, a, sort of press conference, the market would tumble. And one of the things that he has really staked a lot of his um, re-election hopes on is the strength of the economy and the strength of the market. And so it seems from reporting and talking to a variety of people, either in the White House or elsewhere, that that was more convincing to him that, and I think he got to the same place, that it wasn't working to to just manage this, well, one could manage this as in from a PR perspective, but the one PR strategy wasn't working, which was to just say that people shouldn't be scared and that we have it under control because we have it under control. There was a shift 
and Tucker was a part of this, but he wasn't the only part of it, that we are now, or that the, the, the Trump White House is now, we are at war and and in a time of war, you have to trust um, the leader to take it very seriously. I think that if you're if you're looking for ways to try to understand the way that that Donald Trump would approach something like this, it's still a PR approach. It's just a shift in strategy. That absolutely adds up. And the the idea that he's a wartime president must have engaged his imagination, or seems to have engaged his imagination, because you know he likes that that adrenaline and firing on all on all cylinders. It's just very hard. He styles himself as a counterpuncher to find the right thing to punch when you're talking about microbes um, in our systems. And so he's decided, initially named the bad thing, he went after his usual phantoms, the media, Democrats. Um, And now he's settled on, in this strange way, settled on China as to blame. There have even been instances of anti-Asian attacks. Um, There's one in the subway, at least, that was possibly rumored, but strongly rumored to have happened. And um, and then the repetition by Corbyn and others of um, these kind of anti-Asian slurs and the identification of the virus with with China. Um, did you, was that something you feel like a media message? Some people, I, has, I don't know if Hannity or, or uh, Trish Regan have, have run with that yet, but the blaming of China does seem to at least make an other that Trump can focus on. And as potentially energizing to his base as that is, that does not seem any more useful or any more sophisticated as a leadership move than his denialism. There's no question when you watch Fox, whether it's Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram or Tucker Carlson, for that matter, who is also someone who's um, pretty proudly um, non-interventionist in foreign wars and and a, a sort of um, nationalist that that blaming China is and, and calling this you know the 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 Wuhan um, coronavirus or the China coronavirus or the you know, whatever term it is that you want to use to invoke China and a, and a foreign sort of incursion that has definitely been um, if it's not. The attack for an attack from the media or something that's overblown from the Democrats. That's definitely part of the terminology that's been implemented to describe this on air to people to let them understand who's to blame. And I think that the idea, this is, China is definitely part of it. Calling it an unseen enemy is another thing that, that Trump has, has been talking about. You've heard that a little bit on Fox, not as much, but no one on Fox is shying away from associating this with China. No one has has said that this is because Chinese people eat bats, which is what we have heard from some of our politicians, but we'll wait and see. You watch more Fox than anyone should have to, and there have been people lately strenuously warning Americans against watching Fox. There was, I've been looking back and reading a little bit into plague literature. And there was even a moment when Marcus Aurelius during the plague of Justinian, as we all remember, um, uh, said um, disinformation, something like that. Disinformation and lies are even worse than pestilence. 
um, because that they, they help spread plague. And if we think that there's even any truth to that, it might justify people saying online, watching, like it, avoiding Fox is now a matter of life and death. That people even paying a little bit of attention to Fox, you know, parents of a friend of mine were, were told by their doctor that CNN was a greater danger to them than the virus. Someone wow. I ran into who was wow. sneezing on me coughing on me said, uh, it's just the flu. The problem here is the 24-hour news cycle. And if that's what you're hearing on Fox, I mean, that does seem well worth trying to get people to avoid. If we can keep our mothers out of their Zumba classes and their book groups, maybe we can keep them off Fox News. But anyway, you're watching Fox News. You also are home with children. You're home, stay, working from home. You're looking out, I'm sure, for your parents, grandparents, friends of friends. We all know someone, one degree of separation, who has the virus. I was talking to someone yesterday who's in the hospital with it. What, when you're watching Fox News, do you, does it feel like part of the problem? Is it un, as unnerving as it sounds when I see it in clips? If you spend any time watching Fox beyond the viral moments that normally come from their primetime pundits, you do see a measured, a much more measured view of the channel. So there are people who are on during the day who are straighter news personalities who are kind of giving you a straight-ish take on the news. The interesting thing about Fox is that it is one of the only places that Republican politicians will, will regularly appear on cable. And so uh, some of these moments that you get, um, even during the day where things are much more measured, come from the guests and they come from, you know, and, and those guests are sometimes unchallenged. Devin Nunez um, will come on and say something outlandish or another Republican um, congressperson or senator um, will come on. And because that party has been so taken by Trump and overtaken by Trump that what you get, I mean, and I'm, I'm saying this and I'm sort of hesitating a little bit about it because I, I've gone out of my way to spend a lot of time watching. And not every show is like Sean Hannity's show or Laura Ingram's. You do see, you know, is now obviously Shep Smith left and he was a very high profile kind of anchor that the president was always attacking in his tweets. Brett Baer is their six o'clock, you know, news chief political anchor. There are voices there that are certainly measured. And what you have, though, is a, a, a universe where one party, and, and of course, they would argue that that Democrats only go on MSNBC or, or CNN and that it's all very polarized. But, but what you do have is a, a universe where Republicans feel that they can, can come on and, and reach the president. And that really skews the entire sort of guest lineup that you have going on that, um, going on that channel. So it's not that an individual, someone like Bill Hemmer is one of their anchors. Um, it's not that he's saying anything that is outrageous, but what people might be willing to say as a guest on Fox News' air is way different than what you will hear on other news programs. Wow, that is, that's, that's an exciting, 
an interesting way to put it, right? Because it, they are, they don't have a gun at their back, but they almost feel like they have a gun at their face, you know, waiting to through, come from the Trump's bedroom through the camera into their face. Like, I gotta exactly. say this. And they're not, uh, yeah. And tolerating that kind of performance for an audience of one is the kind of thing that Bill Hemmer now sits for and does and facilitates. But it is a, it's a, it's a crazy operation. I don't remember anything like that happening with CNN or MSNBC and Obama. I mean, just that, I don't know, that it would be this loop where you talk to the president through the camera. Just weird. Yeah, there, there's never, there's, I mean, no other president has ever had the, this kind of a relationship to cable news. And so, like with many things with Donald Trump, it's sort of everything old is new again. There's this whole mm. resurgence of a, of a medium that you, you know, that you thought was on its way out, but it's got an incredibly new breath of fresh life because the president is so tuned into it. And so you can see that people at Fox know, they know he is watching and, and it's kind of that experiment where you, you know, he's watching. So they say they don't act differently. I can't imagine and talking in private with the people who are either on their air or um, work behind the scenes, that awareness does affect the way people respond to the different topics that they're, that they're dealing with, whether it's someone like a Brett Bear feels like he needs to be even straighter. But, but that also kind of means um, maybe kind of constantly fact-checking, but not wanting to be overly um, contrarian. You know, it, I think it's just, it, it, it can be, and I don't think this is just based on talking to people inside and around that organization. It's paralyzing sometimes. I wanted to ask you about Ainsley Earhart. What was the situation with her? She also seems to have changed her tune. Well, she said and I can't recall exactly when this was, but she said that now is a great time to fly because airplanes are so empty, you can get a seat next to you. And how wonderful can that be? Now, I will say that in that very moment, Steve Ducey, who is the tall blonde guy who sits next to her on the Fox and Friends couch, immediately sort of fact-checked her in that moment. He said, well, my relative, I can't remember who it was, uh, or friend that he had, was on a plane the other day from New York to somewhere in Florida, I believe. And he was saying it was really packed because, you know, everyone was fleeing New York. So no one on Fox anymore, not Ainsley Earhart, nor, well, there's one more example that I should bring up, which is that Laura Ingram, just this past Friday, said it was also a great time to fly, that it was, a, that that everyone was as long as you're wiping down your your seat and the armrests, that it was it was great. It was a wonderful time to fly. She tweeted that. She then deleted that tweet, um, which I'm not sure how often she really does that. Um, but no one on Fox is is saying that it's a wonderful time to fly anymore. The other thing is, you know, we had the only thing we could talk about. They could talk about on Fox. We could talk about among ourselves. Was was the coming election? You know, until about, what, three weeks ago, you know, a month ago, two months ago, if you were really paying attention to the virus. um, And, uh, you know, it took a while for them to change gears doing what's, quote, best for the president. It's not as though 
at Fox News. And I must say, you know, there are problems with this on CNN and in the mainstream media um, or the non the non what politicized media. We're just so accustomed to thinking of what's good for our candidate, what's good for the republic. So, for instance, they wanted to minimize it. The the Fox crowd wanted to minimize the virus in the beginning because another upset like impeachment would hurt Trump going into the election. Now they're happy to maximize it because it makes him look like, you know, a general in command of a country in wartime, which is what he has got to run on. It's the only thing he has left, it seems, to run on. You know, whatever happens with the economy, he's got to have acted decisively to get us our thousand dollars a month or whatever it is, bring around the hospital ship to New York Harbor and all the dramatic things he's thinking about bailing out this and that. So it does seem like they're still, I mean, Fox is still hitting its marks doing campaigning for the president. And at the same time, media you know, closer to the anti-Trump media. So, you know, mainstream media has sort of gotten ensnarled in this other thing, which is ever since CPAC, ever since it was said that someone had coronavirus at CPAC and it could have been that other conservatives were infected with it, there was a kind of like gleeful, like, how can we be sure, extra sure to lay coronavirus at the feet of Donald Trump? You know, and a, a little bit of a distraction Um, from the kind of news you can use, you know, getting the facts out about the virus, uh, quarreling about, you know, what Trump ought to have done and how how much he's to blame for the spikes in cases here. Seems a little like we're still campaigning, but pretending we're writing about and thinking about public health. What you point out is something that it's notable when you're looking at and I, and I hate to say that this is something that you really can see on Twitter because Twitter isn't real life. Non-journalists don't live on, on Twitter necessarily. You would think that this would be a moment of, you know, this coronavirus pandemic when we, everyone, whether it would be Donald Trump or the media that, that love Donald Trump, the pundits that don't like Donald Trump, when everybody could just like let him leave the stage for a minute and focus on the actual facts of what is going on with respect to this virus. And it's very difficult for a lot of members of whatever side of the media you want to, whatever corner of the media you want to look at, to have this not be a Trump story. It's interesting to see that pull still doesn't let up. You saw it as as recently as today where there were pictures coming out of of Trump scratching out on his own transcript to, to be able to put in the China virus instead of just referring to it by its name and reporters were seizing on that as evidence of this is somebody who was trying to whip up anti-China rhetoric and you know, some were saying racist rhetoric. This is not based on my own reporting, but, you know, you can read other media critics talking about this, saying that the issue is not whether or not Donald Trump is calling this a disease from China or a virus from China. That's That's a conversation. We can have that conversation, but there is an actual factual virus that is, you can call it whatever you want. There's been a public health response in the United States that has 
had a number of hiccups for lack of a better word. There's been an, you know, there, there's been a path, there's been very little testing um, when you look at what's gone on here versus in some other countries. And all of those stories aren't about Donald Trump. And it is interesting to see how hard it is for reporters, some reporters, to let go of that and 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 push him out of the story. Um, and I think it's it's, you know, whatever side of the political spectrum you sit on, it's certainly notable that reporters have a diff that again, some reporters have a difficult time of um, making this ent- entirely divorced from Donald Trump. I'm so glad you're saying this because I probably fall into that category. I had a moment this morning having just written a piece about whether the virus is something like George Bush's Katrina, just something that he didn't recognize the seriousness of soon enough. And after I finished, I thought, you know, my contempt hatred for Donald Trump has actually maxed out. Like, it's like a credit card. I I don't think I, I don't have any more room to have anymore. It's also a time when we need, we really need local news. I was looking at the list of where there are, you know, highest to lowest number of cases in American states. And um, West Virginia is the lowest. And then someone pointed out that, of course, as an extremely poor state, there are just no tests in West Virginia. And, um, and so, you know, that, that number is misleading. But, you know, if I were in West Virginia, I would want a newspaper, I would not necessarily want the high level information about what's happening with the vaccine development at various European big pharma companies. I might want more about how resources were being allocated in Wheeling. The governors have a, an enormous amount of power now. And the mayors, you know, as we know in New York with de Blasio and Cuomo, I've probably never thought as much about the governor of New York as I do now. And also public schools and municipalities making their own decisions. Uh, you know, there was talk in Miami since kids have gone there for um, spring break against all advice. You know, why doesn't the governor of Florida shut down the beaches? I mean, those are conversations I think should be had on local radio. Um, you know, the, I, sometimes I think that if the New York Times and the Washington Post are people are supposed to be national newspapers, you'll still hear way more about people in New Jersey inflicted, northern New Jersey inflicted by coronavirus than you ever will you know, about someone in Topeka or Duluth. Um, So, you know, what's crazy about this story is it doesn't have stars like Donald Trump and it doesn't have um, a a kind of a ground zero like um, Mar-a-Lago or the White House. Uh, It's both a global story and an extremely local story. I mean, even finding out, you know, oh, there's a line outside Key Food where they're only letting in one person at a time. You know, that's the kind of things I'm having to learn, like, you know, on the sidewalk. And there's a lot of rumor mongering. In any case, I, as always, I miss local media, but national media can cover Donald Trump very well, cover that waterfront and more with so many takes and punditry and access and all that. But it can't do a good job of gauging the impact on diverse communities of this disease. So that's a shame. Yeah, I mean, you've you've hit on something that's so important, which is that there's no question this is a global story, but it is made up without a doubt by 
lots and lots and lots of local stories and bits of local reporting where people can understand what's actually happening. And there isn't the bandwidth on a national level, even if you have an incredibly well-funded and well-staffed national paper, you're only going to spend so much time in West Virginia. You're only going to spend so much time in North Carolina, or if you do spend any time there, someone will come in and leave and then have a, a few phone numbers to call back to those people that, that, you know, whoever from the New York times or the Washington post happened to get in touch with when they were in town, but you, you don't have this sustained, robust reporting staff that existed 10 years ago, five years ago, that you did when there were lots and lots of great local and regional outlets across the country. This has been covered a lot in other settings and with respect to other topics that we don't cover school board meetings. The last time that this came up for me when I was reporting on the the effect of the lack of local media was one of the reasons that people were so surprised by the election of Donald Trump was that we didn't have the local papers throughout, local and regional papers throughout cities and towns in the country, regularly going out and talking to the people who live in those towns. So you don't have, it's not just when CNN go, you know, CNN campaign reporters are going around and they quote unquote talk to voters. And you can see, you'll hear people saying like, oh, it's always so great to I love when they say it. It's always so great to talk to voters as if these aren't (laughs) normal humans who live every day and have jobs and are probably smart and, you know, are doing their thing. But so that was a moment where you, where I thought that you didn't have a lot of people who were constantly in touch with the communities that are throughout the country. This is another moment where the information really is local and regional and you can have, you know, whether you're in Lombardi or, New Rochelle, you know, these are places where it's nice to know exactly what's happening. And as you point out, there's so many rumors and random things that people are saying that have no basis in science or fact. It would be good to have a robust local and regional press. Sarah Ellison is a reporter covering media and its intersection with politics and technology at The Washington Post. Thanks so much for being here, Sarah. Thank you. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Say hi on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. Then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and become a Slate Plus member. Our last episode with Dan P. McAdams was a plus episode, and I'm sad for anyone who missed it. Today's your day to sign up. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad free for only $35 for the first year. Best of all, you'll be supporting all our work at Slate. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with engineering help from Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.